Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is exactly the right person to have on the show at exactly the right time. The reinsurance world is about to head down to Monaco for its annual global rendezvous. So ahead of that, speaking to the CEO of the reinsurer that, according to AM Best, is now the second largest writer of gross non-life reinsurance premium in the world, producing almost $26 billion in PNC top line, has got to be a good call. A business of that scale has visibility into every nook and corner of the insurance value chain. So I'm delighted to be welcoming Jean-Jacques Anchot, CEO of Hanover Re, back to the podcast. But not just because of Hanover Re's scale and strategically important position in the market, but also because of its and Jean-Jacques' straightforward approach to communication. Hanover Re is a massive player, but it's always spoken to the market in a very direct style that has always struck me as being far more intimate and approachable than its more formal peers. I think that reflects the down-to-earth, no-nonsense nature of this still fast-growing and high-performing business, and it makes for a very valuable listen. You'll be able to hear all of this for yourself in just a moment, but from this conversation, I think we can expect a much less dramatic and far more stable renewal season than the radical and revolutionary one we've just had. Jean-Jacques calmly answers all my questions with no omissions or deviations, and exudes all the smarts, coolness, stability and continuity that all students are really buying into when they seek out a major reinsurer like Hanover's support. In fact, I don't think I've met a CEO yet who best personifies his own company's brand. Here for yourself. Enjoy the podcast. Jean-Jacques, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much. The third time, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for giving me the time. And we're doing this chat a week after your results. And this is going to come out just before Monte Carlo. So I'm going to use this as a bit of a scene setter before Monte Carlo. In those results, your H1 results, excellent results as usual. Certainly my impression was that you were using these strong market conditions to be more selective. I mean, some CEOs would say that the message would be growth, growth, growth. With you, it seemed to be the message was more selective. You were going to be using this market to improve your bottom line rather than your top line necessarily. That's a fair summary, Mark, of what we tried to do as uh, the January 23 renewals were negotiated. There were a few considerations. The first was very much that prices and terms had to adjust. So we were forceful, but also partnering with our clients to find a good way to adjust the terms. One aspect which we noticed was the fact that proportional covers were becoming less attractive than non-proportional covers. So we had a tactical shift towards a non-proportional business, which had an impact on the top line, which is not of great importance to me, but led to the perception that we were not very much focused on growth. I think when you look at the expected bottom line, there is continuous growth in the numbers. So I was very happy about it. But it's fair to say that we challenged our underwriters to really look at their own portfolio, look at expected profitability, look at track record, and be challenging when the returns were not sufficient to really meet our targets. So there was a bit of an impact, but I think the main impact was the shift to non-proportional business. And about that shift from proportionals, because I think perhaps at the earlier stages of this harder market, it was easier to do more proportional because you could get that rising tide from the primary market. So now you're saying, is it that the underlying insurance conditions aren't so good? Or is it things like commission, seeding commission, that kind of thing that aren't so good? What's about it that's made it less attractive? 
Yeah, there was a bit of both, Mark. Clearly, we could see that the, the cycle was a little bit different in the primary space. And the big question was, you know, how successful can our clients be in managing inflation? So clearly, this was one of the triggers for the decision making. But the cycle was moving to an end. In some cases, we felt the terms were not sufficient. And for that reason, we retrieved a bit of our capacity. And is there any bifurcation there between casualty and property? Is it the casualty proportion you're less enamored with? Well, there was also some short tail business, uh, proportional short tail, which was not attractive to us. It was not really so different. But it's true that when looking at price adequacies, we feel that generally the property segment has had the most significant correction and is in a better spot. When it comes to some of the long tail business, there is a way to go. Litigation finance is a big topic in the US is preoccupying and that's why we're really diligent and didn't want to grow too much in some of the lines of business. And so that move to non-proportion, you feel you're more in control of your own destiny about where your attachment point is? I think that's exactly the case. And uh, we, we'll see over time, it's more a tactical move and a strategy where we felt that could control the cycle more in terms of conditions. If and when the conditions are right to support some of our key clients with quarter share capacity, we'll do so. We last spoke at Monte Carlo last year, and of course, we've had that big reset since you spoke. Yeah. So obviously, that was when I was talking to everybody, we were talking about this feeling that we finally were, as a reinsurance industry, going to see a big reset. So presumably, you must be much happier now than you were then, even though obviously, you're always looking to optimize and always looking. So presumably, in general, rate adequacy is better than it was this time last year, I presume? It's much better. We showed our numbers at mid-year and also the whole market could show that outcome. So we're quite happy about where we are. I think the short tail lines have good price adequacies. I think the fact that retention levels are a bit higher, particularly in the US, is playing a role, although this was a reaction from the clients. So I'm much happier today than I was. But the year is long, as we always say in reinsurance. You know, this is just before Monte Carlo. And a lot of things can happen. We have still inflationary trends. We still have war and geopolitics with huge uncertainties. We have climate change, which is a, an ongoing topic. Looking at wildfires is one of many examples touching our industry. The disaster in Hawaii, which was really tragic, very sad. These are very big topics which are not going away anytime soon. And that, that's why we need to work with our customers to make sure we tackle these exposures and we have the right price, the right terms going forward. But clearly, compared to last time we met in Monte Carlo last year, I think we're in a stronger place with a better outlook. Yes. And looking at that outlook, looking at the H1 results, Q2 results, certainly the common theme would be that most observers would say that they can see strong reinsurance market conditions well into 2024 and maybe even beyond. Are you of that opinion that the market's going to stay strong? I am convinced the, the market will stay strong. We have a disciplined market. We don't have a disruptive market, but all the players like Hanover Re are really cautious on managing their exposures. That dynamics will play into 2024. I'm quite sure of it. Of course, a lot can happen, but potential 
capital providers will wait and see. And I don't see a trend of seeing a lot of fresh capital coming into the industry sooner than expected. So for me, 24 will be relatively similar to 23. It's very much been a little bit of capital to very experienced, very top quartile type of players who have asked for that capital, who can tell those investors exactly what they want to use it for. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be anything more than that. Is that the right sort of feeling that there is capital for top players who have a specific need for it, but there doesn't seem to be a big wave of capital wanting to enter the industry? Perfectly observed, Mark. I think we see more specialized market. We see flight to quality in that sense. And we can benefit from it as we want to purchase retrocession capacity in 2024. So that flight of quality plays into our hand. But the prerequisite, of course, is to continue to show that underwriting discipline and acumen because capital providers have suffered quite a bit, to be frank, with heavy NATCAT losses. And an ROE for the industry, which has been far from stellar on average, the industry more often than not did not earn their cost of capital. So this needs to be corrected. Even when we see a good trend, I think there'll be regained interests from investors for the range space. Well, you've been quality, you've certainly earned your cost of capital. And you've also had a long relationship with those capital markets, with those retro markets, the ILS markets, whatever we want to call it. And you've been a long-term sponsor and correspondent with that market for a long time. What's your feeling at the moment? Do you feel it's a more pliant market? You talk about flight to quality. You're certainly a quality entity. What's your request to them now? Is it, we'd love to get more capacity, we'd like to do more of this business? Or are you still very cautious yourself, not requesting capacity at the moment? You know, for me, it's very important that our retro partners, as much as they contribute to managing our own volatility, earn a fair return over time of the cycle. So my first inclination is to stay disciplined, to make sure that on a gross and on a net basis, we provide quality and high returns. Because the retrocessionary is of importance to us only if they are long-term oriented. I suppose you can't be making profits year after year at the expense of your retrocessionaires because they won't be there for very long. Eventually, they'll abandon you, won't they? Absolutely. So, you know, we had COVID, we had huge NATCAT events. It's only fair that retro partners get their share of the return. So fingers crossed, we hope that 23 will be such a year. If it's a low NATCAT year, of course, that means that we have an additional cost with the retro protection. But that's okay. You know, I can live with that kind of underperformance once in a time. I suppose they want to get some money back after quite a bad decade, should we say? Absolutely. And then let's face it, on the underlying, yes, we're talking about wildfires in Hawaii that we would never have talked about 10 years ago. It wouldn't have occurred to us that this would be something that would be in the low single-digit billions and a loss that came out of nowhere. But the world has changed. Something that came out of your results and I'm quite nostalgic. There's a time facultative reinsurance was a big thing for all of yeah. us journalists. We ended up starting different facultative reinsurance magazines and things. So I've, I've got my own personal nostalgia about this. But I, so when I see the word fac or facultative in results, I think, well, yeah, particularly in the context of a hard market. And again, talking about tactical, and I suppose yeah. there's nothing more tactical than facultative reinsurance. Looks like an interesting opportunity. If you could lay out what you see that opportunity for facultative being at the moment, it seems to be in a very golden period at the moment. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision-makers in the insurance industry. 
and you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. It has fared very, very well. And I'm also nostalgic about fact because I started my career in fact <laughs> underwriting many years ago. But clearly, this is a, a way for clients to manage their portfolio in this phase of the market. Treaty reinsurance is a bit more restrictive on capacity and terms from the view of clients. So we see more facultative opportunities. There's a strong pipeline. The portfolio has been very profitable, very diversified. So we're keen to continue to grow. But carefully, as I mentioned, we don't want to compromise on the diversification of the book. We see in the energy sector quite a bit of opportunities related to new coverage, new technologies. We see also in the construction sector opportunities and build this risk segment. In particular, you've had some large infrastructure, finance opportunities, also from governments in North America, in some Asian countries. So this is a very interesting part of what we do. Not that well known. We don't speak a lot about the fact that it's very important to our client relationships. And it's one of the very profitable segments we have at PNC. Again, I suppose it's very broker-led, but something you can offer a client if you've got a more restrictive view, perhaps overall on their treaty, then you can say, well, you can still talk to our fact team. We still have capacity, but it's in a slightly different way of packaging it. Absolutely. And I think there is a good level of dialogue on individual risks and the clients do appreciate the advice and the feedback we get on how to structure deals and, of course, how to price them. We're very happy to work closely with our clients on facultative. And I suppose with facultative, you get the individual risk information that you require to really understand Exactly. As we move out of some of the layers which are closer to the, the primary risk in treaty, facultative is becoming much more important in terms of still feeling the pulse of the primary market. You know, otherwise we're too far. Yes. So fact is bound to gain in importance for us. Excellent. Okay. We shall look forward to seeing that as it comes through. What about casualty? We've already mentioned this a little bit earlier. I was talking about maybe a bifurcation there. Are there worries there? Obviously, we've seen a return to competition, but those often in classes that have had very big corrections. So overall, are you still happy that there's adequacy, but you're more cautious because underlying rates are coming off? Yes, it's always concentrated on the US. Frankly, that's the market where you have the huge capacities. That's the market where, as I mentioned earlier, you have significant systemic problems with litigation finance becoming a huge phenomenon and class action court cases, which leads to aberrant outcome and huge numbers. So we need to be very, very cautious. We have been very diversified across the United States, across clients. We tend to favor smaller clients. We're not into the other, the top risks, Fortune 500 risks. We're not into the tougher classes like commercial auto or DNO for publicly listed companies. So I think we're okay because of the diversification and portion. The problem is the growth potential in casualty in the US specifically would require much more 
than what we see in terms of price increases and improved terms. It's not enough yet. It's not enough. And that's the barrier to grow for us. So we want to grow exponentially in U.S. casualty as long as we cannot address these systemic problems. So it's that rate. If the rate was there, you might be more excited, shall we say, about it. It's hard to be excited given the current trends, to be frank, but I think that would be a first answer. We would need to look into some of the terms and conditions. But it's really about the fundamental risk pricing. Exactly. And we need to understand some of the emerging exposures. There are always new topics emerging, so we need to make sure we master that. A lot about portfolio steering, portfolio management, make sure we're not overly exposed in yep. the segments. But so far, so good. I think you know, I'm fairly happy, but we are cautious. That's a fair statement. And talking about surprises, something that was a surprise since we last spoke, probably came at the end of last year. You had an impact from what was called deemed hospitalization cases. This was COVID-related losses where I think people who were resting at home were deemed by a judge to have been hospitalized and therefore they could trigger an accident health policy that they had that would pay out on hospitalization, even though, of course, they weren't actually hospitalized. But I suppose because of the exceptional circumstance of COVID, they were deemed to have been. But something that surprised me as a journalist, as soon as I saw this from you, I thought there's going to be read across to everybody else because you know, you're know you all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat as a reinsurance industry. I thought this is going to be a new shock that we would have to deal with. Have you been surprised that we haven't really seen it across the board? I suppose I haven't seen those same words appear in other people's language. That's fair to say that the usual incumbents in the reinsurance space were not as exposed as we were. So it's a combination of regulatory risk with that new definition of what a hospitalization is and the fact of being relatively overexposed uh, in a certain segments. These were geographies, Thailand in particular, but also uh, Taiwan, where it was impossible to exclude COVID-related cases and it resulted in a, in a large loss burden to, to Hanover Reed. The fact that we're not with the usual peers is another indicator, unfortunately exposed, that we should not have overexposed ourselves in that segment. That's business, isn't it? With hindsight, you think, well, wish we hadn't been so exposed. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's a social contract, I suppose. If they change the rules of the game, that's the risk that we all run as insurers. We rely on legal contracts and the law to uphold the contract. And if it changes, I suppose, then the game changes. Yeah, I think we need to look at this kind of scenarios where there is a change, as you say, of the social contract, the change of perception of what insurance should provide. COVID on the non-life side showed at the time, particularly in Europe as well, that uh, the legal obligations can be interpreted from a societal viewpoint. And, and that led us uh, as an industry to pay for losses which were not meant to be paid by the contract. But society's wish channeled through politicians in particular was too powerful. And I think that's something we need to reflect on generally. If political decisions are more important and supersede the legal commitments, that's a risk we need to incorporate in our thinking. It's a part of the game of insurance, ultimately, isn't it, at the highest level, that it is a social contract and that sometimes changes, but then you have to be able to reprice or you have to re-underwrite on the new rules, on the new information that comes through. 
Exactly. The, the problem is that you know the intuitive reaction from the industry will be to reprice and or to install some limits or to exclude. And yeah. Long term, it can't be in the interest of society to proceed by exclusion. You know, I don't like to see protection gaps, whatever the line of business, because it shows that the insurance industry has not been able to contribute to a loss. On the other yeah. hand. If we want to be part of the solution, whether we talk about COVID exposures or NATCAP, we need to be able to have the right price. And society needs to accept that there is a price for risk. And if you want the price to go down, you need to work on prevention and mitigation. You know, there's no secret around it. So a big discussion point beyond you know, what we will be talking in Monte Carlo. But that notion of a social contract is, is rather sensitive these days. We, we need to play an active role in the, in the debate and make sure that people understand what insurance is and what it is not. You know? It seems a shame, particularly when you're talking about protection gaps, that we're talking about some fast-growing emerging economies, of course, which have larger protection gaps than the slower-growing mature economies. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, it's probably a good time to talk about net zero insurance alliance again we're really in the same position i feel that this social contract of where politics and insurance are interacting and we're kind of bumping into each other quite hard i think as insurers we would like to be above politics or away from politics but of course there's nothing we can do about it we're a fundamental part of society and politics will come and find us even if we try and avoid it since we last spoke again this net zero insurance alliance has more or less collapsed it's difficult to say whether it's officially collapsed or not there was political pressure, it seems. It was a political debate about climate change and about what to do about it. What should we do now as an industry? How should we respond to this? What can we assemble that is not something that could be attacked in this way? And, and, and just for benefit of listeners, the Net Zero Insurance Alliance has been attacked on the basis that it was potentially an antitrust issue, a potentially anti-competitive cartel-like situation where insurers were all collaborating together. That was what was alleged. I don't think for a moment that that's what it was, but that's how it was being attacked by those people who were attacking it. What can we do now to create something that won't be attacked on that basis? It was a difficult one because it doesn't change the long-term orientation when it comes to how we want to tackle climate change, how we want to make a contribution over time. And we entered that alliance at the time to be able to learn and to develop new methodologies on how to measure the impact in terms of CO2 emissions of, uh, of our business. This is absolutely nothing to do with cartel type of arrangements. The problem is that regulators and policymakers and politicians have very different views, particularly between the European countries and the United States. And there is fragmentation in how to tackle these problems. And rather than engage in many court cases in the US and have all our lawyers involved in an unnecessary discussion, we felt the tactical move would be to refrain from being exposed to this legal risk but the essence of what we're trying to achieve does not change. So what we need to do is the difficult one. I think we need to push forward on measurement of our business so that we can make progress in tackling exposures and meeting our long-term commitments. So is that, for example, having a standard methodology of, so when you are presented with a portfolio, you know, it may be a proportional treaty that you will yep. have some understanding of what was the carbon number associated with that and a way that has compiled those millions of individual risks that have maybe gone into that portfolio and are then something that could be an output to you to understand and something that you could continue to output to your own retro. 
Absolutely. So we need that level of standardization and that level of comparatively speaking, you know, people need to benchmark different risks and this will become increasingly part of the risk information. And then we can take decisions. I think it's important we take decisions on a company level. There's no arrangements to be made as an industry, but at least that we speak the same language. Yeah. There are other bodies like the IDF, you know, the Insurance Development Forum, yeah. And of course, a lot of German entities have been already hugely collaborating with on the funding side. Yeah. But do you think there might be a role there? You know, we've done this before as an industry with Cresta zones and other things. Yeah. It doesn't seem beyond our capability to create the kind of whatever we're going to call it, the Cresta zone of CO2 emissions. I like the, the concept of Cresta because it's a good comparison. And that's something which the public sector needs to help with. The German institutions have been very proactive in that space. Absolutely. They've been world leading on this. They are, and they provide some finance. They're very, very keen to team up with some international institutions, are trying hard to promote the right ideas. But there are many stakeholders. There is still some fragmentation, and politics needs to support that, you know, because in the end, it needs to be anchored into the regulatory process. Uh, but what we can do as an industry is certainly help with putting that framework in place on how to measure and eventually how to price, because it will be part of the pricing mechanism. We need to incorporate these externalities into the pricing. So yes, a lot to do, but we're suffering from political fragmentation and indecision about an urgent topic. Well, we've got COP28 coming up, so perhaps that'll be something we can organize when we're there and when we've got all mm -hmm. the governments in the room and so get something they can all agree on and then little attorney general in one single state somewhere can't say anything about that if they're being superseded by an international treaty or something we'll see what we can do yep something i want to ask about it's been a very busy time for lloyds a golden time for lloyds i'd say you know in its 330 year history a lot of growth and obviously you're in lloyds with argentum we talk about hanover Reeves, such a big organization i'd like to ask you specifically about Argenta, about how that's going. That's a purchase you made quite a few years ago now. And how are you viewing it as part of your portfolio? We're quite positive about Argenta. The, the phase with COVID was quite heavy on the company. We had some NACAT burden, but the, the team is doing a very good job in restoring profitability, improving the numbers, being selective on underwriting. I met them a few weeks ago and feel they had the necessary focus um, so we're very happy about the franchise. What needs to be mentioned is that we are uh, quite a big contributor to the Lloyd's market generally as a reinsurance provider. And the Lloyd's team has done a fantastic job in pushing the agenda for digitalization, for tackling the cost problem of the Lloyd's market, but also pushing for profitable growth. And their efforts are bearing some fruit. They are helped by the hardening of market terms, of course. But I think the Lloyd's market is heading in the right direction. And we're very happy to remain a strong contributor and an interesting player across the board in London. So Argenta is a good way to capture maybe some risks which we might not have access to with other seedants. And it's an opportunity also for us to learn about new exposures, about new topics, a bit of an exception to the rule. We're a pure play reinsurance provider. Yeah. But I think it fits very well in terms of underwriting philosophy and mindsets and results are going to improve over the next few years. It's, it's partly a way that you can experiment with some of the new lines of business that are 
perhaps better developed when you're in a consortium, when you're in a syndicated kind of situation, which is the sort of thing, obviously, which can happen very quickly at Lloyd's with brokers spinning up big limits for new products. Absolutely. So again, you know, we, we were talking about fact in that sense for the London market. Argenta is a good way for us to get much closer to the original risks and foster our understanding and improving our methodologies. And again, so in general, the way that you view Argenta, it's, it's a way of accessing the risk that you just couldn't access otherwise, or you'd be only accessing it from another step removed at the very least. Absolutely. Yeah. We've had a good discussion. You've been quite concise, actually, because I mean, we only had 45 minutes penciled in, but we've got a bit more time. What's your message ahead of Monte Carlo, for example? I mean, often people work on some kind of message. It sounds like you're certainly very much open for business, but you want to have a very close look at what that business is. Yeah, absolutely. I think my message, and we haven't talked with the team on the essence of the message yet, but, but for me, the ingredients are first, we are indeed up for business. We are a partnership-oriented company, you know, and we want to partner with our clients. Uh, we want to make it sustainably attractive and profitable for both sides, I should say the three sides, if I include the retrocession market. And we want to show that we're a relevant industry, and, and that relates to these protection gaps and the need for us as an industry to look into these protection gaps, understand the reasons for this, and provide constructive solutions. Sometimes it might be price increases in terms of conditions. Sometimes it might be related to how to structure risks. But I think we need to show that in an increasingly volatile world, a very complex world, we are a very relevant industry. And relevance means innovation, means thinking through emerging risks and trying to provide solutions as opposed to having exclusions all over the place and saying you know, we need price to increase. It's of course, prices need to increase, but I think it's more important that we, as an industry, show relevance in a very uncertain time. Yeah. And when you're talking about partnership, that's just a reiteration of your philosophy is presumably you want to find good partners and stick with them and they can do a lot of growing for you if you pick the right ones, of course, the ones that grow profitably. Absolutely. You know, the more important decision for the underwriter is, is pick your partner. That's the most important decision. This is driven by the underwriting quality of the team and the sustainably profitable value proposition. But when you've made up that choice, then you should stick to the client and partner and help them grow with them, manage issues together. That's the essence of the reinsurance. We are not a transactional industry. That's not who we are, and we need to show partnerships. But it comes with a price, and the price of risk is really what reinsurers are able to do, is give a price to all potential and existing risks. So at Monte Carlo, your teams are all there. They're looking forward to starting some new relationships and deepening the ones you've already got. And long may it continue. Absolutely. That would be a good conclusion. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jean-Jacques. I don't think we've got time in Monte Carlo's because I, I think you're extremely busy. I'll leave you to it and we'll catch up at some point in the future. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Mike. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. 
podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.